The following message is brought to you by Berean Bible Church and may be used and distributed free of charge. For more free audio, video, and text resources, be sure to visit www.bereanbiblechurch.org. Thank you. Good morning. I want to welcome you this morning to Berean Bible Church. We're continuing looking at the farewell discourse, which is part of the upper room discourse. This is the Lord's last night on earth, and He has gathered His disciples together to teach them things they need to know before He leaves them. Now, Yeshua has shocked His disciples by telling them that He's leaving them, and He's told them, where I'm going, you can't come. And the disciples also shaken up by the Lord's words when Excuse me, he said, one of them is about to betray him. And then Peter's going to deny him repeatedly. And they've asked the Lord a number of questions, but it's really clear that they have no clue on what's about to happen to Yeshua or to them. They just don't have a clue. Now, we've just finished looking at John 15, 1 through 17, which deal with the metaphor of the vine and the branches. It's my understanding that this passage on fruit-bearing deals with the subject of discipleship. Fruit-bearing is a mark of discipleship. Now, In this text, he is commanding believers to abide in Him. In verse 3, he says, you're clean. Verse 4, he says, abide in Me. Excuse me. To abide in Christ means to make our home in Him. Abiding in Him is not automatic. It's something which believers are commanded to do. It's something that takes effort. It takes action on our part. Yeshua tells us that we abide in Him by allowing His Word to abide in us. And we abide in Him by keeping His commandments. Three times in this section, He tells believers to love one another. These things I command you so that you will love one another. Now, this is not a suggestion by the Lord. It's a commandment. You're to love one another, He says. Now, you cannot live out the Christian life. You cannot abide in Christ. You cannot be a disciple of Christ. You cannot bear fruit without a commitment to loving other believers. This is so important. This is foremost. We're to treat one another with love. Now, Lazarus revisits this theme later in 1 John when he says this, Beloved, if God so loved us, and He did, we also ought to love one another. Our love for one another identifies us as the Lord's disciples. Now, the scholars are divided over whether verse 17 goes with the verses before it, or with those that follow. I think maybe both sides are right, and we need to see this as a transition verse. Linking what has gone before to what follows. Notice the next verse. Verse 18. If the world hates you, you know that it has hated me before it hated you. What I want you to notice here is the contrast between verse 17 and 18. In verse 17 he says, Love one another. In verse 18, he says, the world hates you. And I really feel he's trying to stress here, listen, the reason you people need to love one another 
It's because the world hates you. And you need a place where you can be loved, where, where people believe like you believe. They understand what you believe. They're together and they are loving one another because out there in the world, they hate you. In this text, John 15, 18-25, Yeshua tells the disciples that their service to Him, in their service to Him, they can expect hatred. They can expect rejection, persecution from the world. See, in contrast to Yeshua's love for His disciples, the world hates them. Comparison was a major feature of ancient elaboration. And Yeshua turns from the subject of love in God's community to that of hatred in the world's community. Now in our text for today, Yeshua is warning His disciples about and explaining the obstacles that their mission is going to face. They're going to be hated, He says in verse 18. They're going to be persecuted, He says in verse 20. But such hatred and persecution are really only logicals since they already hated and persecuted Yeshua. So essentially, our Lord is promising them persecution as a result of hatred. Great promises in these texts, right? Abiding in Christ is the source of their life. It's the source of our life. It's the source of fruit bearing. It's the source of fellowship, both with God and their fellow Christians. But abiding in Christ also causes the world to hate them. The same hatred for Yeshua which prompts unbelievers to call for His crucifixion will soon be vented upon those who identify with Christ. Now our text falls into two sections. The world's hatred of Christians, verses 18-25, and our responsibility to a hostile world, which is namely to bear witness of Christ, in verses 26-27, and which leads right into chapter 16. Now, he says, if the world hates you, the Greek construction here does not express doubt. This is a first-class conditional sentence, which is assumed to be true from the author's perspective. We would say, since the world hates you, or just say, the world hates you. There's no question but the world will hate the disciples because it hated Yeshua. Now, the word hate here is from the Greek word, miseo. It means hatred. It means to detest. It means to persecute. This word miseo is used seven times in these ten verses. These verses are loaded with hatred. Okay? Hate you is a present active indicative. The world continues and will continue to hate you. Now, in the series of four sentences in verse 18 through 21, Yeshua repeats that the world hated, the world's hatred for his disciples is a rejection of him and his word. The word world here is from the Greek cosmos. Now, if you look up all Lazarus' uses of cosmos, you'll see that he uses this term in a couple different ways. It can refer to the habitable world in which Yeshua ministered. World can refer to the spiritually corrupt world dominated by Satan, and that's what he's using it here. Thirdly, world can refer to the world of the elect who are living in the world. And here it's used of the moral order that is in rebellion against God. 
Henry Morris writes this, The word cosmos, world, has an especially Johannian ring about it in the New Testament. Altogether, it occurs 185 times, of which 78 occurrences are in John, 24 in the Johannian epistles, and 3 in Revelation. Its occurrence in the Synoptic Gospels is not frequent. Matthew eight times, Mark and Luke three times each. It occurs in the Pauline Epistle a total of 47 times. It is thus a word of some importance for John. I think we can see that by its uses. But it's not so much used by other New Testament writers. Now, D.A. Carson writes that the world, as commonly in John, refers to the created moral order in active rebellion against God. That's how he's using it here. The, the world hates you. That orderly system that is in rebellion against God, they hate you because they hate Christ. He says, know that it has hated me before it hated you. You know, thinking about Yeshua's life, why would anybody hate Him? He says, it hated me. Why would the world hate Christ? I mean, He was kind. He was loving. He healed people. He delivered people from demons. He fed people that were hungry. Why would anybody hate that? Well, in chapter 7, verse 7, he says this, It hates me because I testify about it that its works are evil. He speaks out against it, and they don't like that. See, now... When Yeshua says here, the world cannot hate you, He's talking to His unbelieving brothers. They can't hate you because you're part of that world. You fit right into that world. So they don't hate you. Why does it hate me? Not because of my works, He's saying. Not because of all the nice things He does. But because I testify, He said, that its deeds are evil. It was Yeshua's words, not His actions, that generated this kind of a response. Believer, the world hated Christ. The Jewish religious leaders were plotting to arrest him and kill him at the very moment he was speaking these words. And if they hated Christ, they're going to hate us, listen, if we are like Christ. So, if you don't want to be hated by the world, just go on living like the world. They're not going to hate you because if you fit in, why would they hate you? He's talking to His disciples here. He's talking about those who are abiding. The world hates abiding believers. If they hated Christ, they'll hate us if we're like Christ. There will be a point at which the disciples' loving obedience to Yeshua makes them so much like Him that the world will respond to them just the way they responded to Christ. Yeshua had told them earlier in Matthew 10.25, It's enough for the disciple to be like his teacher. That's the goal of discipleship, people. Be like your teacher. And the servant like his master. If they call the master of the house Beelzebul, how much more will they malign those of his household? Well, if they call Yeshua the prince of demons, how much more are those that are associated with him? He told them that this hatred was coming. In Matthew 24, 9, he says, They will deliver you up to tribulation, They will put you to death. You will be hated by all nations for my name's sake. See, abiding in Christ has many benefits. But one of the painful side effects 
is that because the world hates our Lord, it will hate us if we abide in Christ. And this is kind of a way you can judge how well you're doing as far as an abiding Christian. If you're just getting along fine with everybody in the world, there's a problem there. Because Yeshua said the world will hate us. And it hates us because of Christ. And with all this hatred that's coming from the world, it's really important, people, that we love one another. We need that. We need a place to go where we're loved. Really, truly loved. Because out there, it's supposed to hate us. Now again, if we're not living the way we ought to live, and we're blending in, then we're not experiencing that hatred. And then maybe the love of the church is not so important. But the people like Sharon talked about this morning in Voice of the Martyrs, the church is that loving place you want to be to escape that hatred that comes from the world. In verse 19, he says, If you were of the world, the world would love you as its own. But because you are not of the world, because I chose you out of the world, therefore the world hates you. If you were of the world. Now, we just talked about a first class condition. This is a second class conditional sentence, which is called contrary to fact. This should be translated, if you are of the world, which you are not, then the world will love you, but it does not. Now, in chapter 8, Yeshua had distinguished himself from the world by addressing his Jewish opponents. He said to them, you're from below. I'm from above. You are of this world. I am not of this world. Yeshua was not of the world, and neither are his disciples to be. Again, Yeshua says, The world hates you. Why does it hate us? It's because we're not like them. Like Yeshua, we are not of the world. I do not ask, this is Yeshua's prayer, we'll get to this in chapter 17, but he's praying for his disciples. He says, I do not ask that you take them out of the world. He wants us in the world so we can influence the world, but that you keep them from the evil one. They are not of the world, just as I'm not of the world. And this, again, we see the same theme later in 1 John, where he writes, they are from the world, therefore they speak from the world, and the world listens to them. We are from God. You see the contrast he's making? They're from the world, we're from God. So we're not of the world. Believer, the world hates us, because you are not of the world. Because we're not of the world, We should differ with the world on almost every view they hold. They're interested in money and accumulation of money. They're interested in property. They're interested in social status and position. All those things the world is immensely interested in because they have absolutely no interest in the things that matter, the things of God. And because we're not of the world, we shouldn't love the things that are of the world. Do not love the world or the things in the world, 1 John 2 says. We can't love God in the world because they're mutually exclusive. And if you find that the world doesn't hate you, it's probably because you're just like them. Because if you love the Lord and keep His commandments, 
the world's going to hate you. Because you're showing them Christ and that bothers people. All right? Indeed, all who desire to live godly in Christ Yeshua will be persecuted. <clears throat> Paul's writing Timothy, he says, listen, Timothy, everybody who desires to live a godly life is going to suffer persecution. That's clear enough, isn't it? Is that clear? You think that's complicated? It's not a tough verse. If you live godly, people don't like that that are of the world. Because you blow the standard for them. Now, if you say you're a Christian and you live like them, that makes them comfortable. Oh, great. See, they're a Christian. I, I'm not, but pff, they're no different than me, so what's the big deal? Plato, who wrote hundreds of years before the coming of the Lord, had a little insight into spiritual things. He said this, that if a truly righteous man ever appeared on earth, he would be scourged, imprisoned, and hanged. The world doesn't like righteousness. The world hates Christ, and they hate those who are like Him. And so the Christian should not feel strange when he's opposed by his friends, by his family members, by his mother, by his father, by his sisters or brothers, or by their children. He is opposed by them for the simple reason that the world spirit is different from the Christian spirit. D.A. Carson <clears throat> points out that we see the world's hatred in those who claim to be liberal and tolerant of differing viewpoints, but who are not so tolerant when it comes to Christian absolutes. We see this everywhere in our society today. The world preaches tolerance. You have to accept everything. Whatever it is, you've got to accept it. But we don't accept Christianity at all. Okay, We don't put up with that nonsense. Everything else is tolerated. You know, and unbelievers will tolerate you, when you but when you tell them, you know, you believe in Yeshua, okay, that's fine, you, that's your thing, you do your thing. But when you go and say, well, that's the only way to God, that's the only way to heaven, oh, then they don't put up with that. No, that's ridiculous. They'll accuse you, you're intolerant. They'll be friendly with you until you make it clear that you have absolute moral standards that come from the world. I mean, come from the Word of God. And that the culture's standards are wrong. Boy, if they've ever been wrong, they're getting more wrong every day. Okay? I mean, if you say homosexuality is a sin, you could be arrested for a hate crime pretty soon. Seriously. Because it's the in thing. If you say this whole gender identity tampering thing is a sin, and now the latest is gender is fluid. Did you know it's fluid? You can be a him, you can be a shim, you can be a she. You can just float back and forth in between whatever you feel like. <clears throat> People, I think this whole transgender thing is a mental illness. I'm sorry, but I think there's something wrong with someone who thinks they're somebody that they're not. And I don't care how many operations you go through, I don't, know, I don't care how many drugs you take, your DNA will always be male or female, you will not change that. You are what you are. Okay? In our society, though, it's like, hey, we're, if they want to be that, then we'll accept them to be that. Or whatever they are at the moment, we'll accept that. You speak out against that, people, and there's going to be problems. Like I said, they're, they're coming a time, it won't be long, that you know <clears throat> they'll be arresting preachers for saying homosexuality is a sin. 
How about you say there's no such thing as a same-sex marriage? You know who invented marriage? God did. How about that? He invented it, so he, he's going to tell you how the rules are. It's one man and one woman for one lifetime. So if you have two people that aren't opposite sexes, they don't. it's not a marriage. I'm okay if you want to call it a civil union. But it's not a marriage. It never will be a marriage. Because a marriage is between a man and a woman. But those things you got to be careful saying because you get in trouble in our day and age. But the people, the Bible speaks against them. We got to stop backing down from society, you know, because we offend them. It's the Word of God that offends them. We just have to speak it in love. You know, I don't think it's right to attack anybody, but we have to hold to our standards. And believer, let me tell you this, if you live in obedience to Yeshua, you're going to threaten unbelievers in your family, at school, at work, because your godly life will expose their sin. As a result, they're going to attack you. <clears throat> so be ready for the onslaught. I remember the first time this happened to us. Kathy and I were young as Christians. We were up in Pennsylvania visiting the relatives, and one of her sisters came against us, and she was just railing us. You guys, I can't believe you're condemning mom and dad and you're condemning us. And we're like, I'm looking at her, I'm like, did you say something to anybody? And I didn't say, what are they, t I mean, we were like clueless, what is going on here? And later I realized, we didn't have to say anything, we were living differently. And it bothered them. It blew the standard. And so they attacked us because of it. And like I said, I, I didn't know what was going on. I was thinking, something's happening and we don't even know about. We're doing things that we must be doing in our sleep or something, you know, but... You, you live a different life, you exalt the Lord, and it bothers the people of the world. He, the Lord says, I chose you out of the world, therefore the world hates you. See, we were in the same mess as the rest of the world until the Lord showed His amazing grace to us. The psalmist describes this beautifully in Psalm 40. He says, He drew me up from the pit of destruction, out of the miry bog, and set my feet upon a rock. That rock is the Lord God, okay? Making my steps secure. He put a new song in my mouth, a song of praise to our God. Many will see in fear and put their trust in Yahweh. Now the reason that we're not part of the world is because the Lord says we were chosen out of the world. Man, there goes again with this chosen stuff. It's everywhere in this book. Everywhere you go. People, we are what we are because we were chosen by God to be His children. Look what Paul wrote in Ephesians 1. Even as He chose us in Him, before the foundation, before He created the world, He picked us out to be part of His family. You say, how did He do that? He's God. He knew we'd be and He knew He wanted us. All right? That we should be holy and blameless before Him. In love, He predestined us for adoption. Again, predestined. He chose us out to Himself as sons through Yeshua the Christ. Now watch this. Why did He do that? According to the good purpose of His will. Purpose here is a Greek word that means good pleasure. Why did God choose us? He wanted to. He want, It's not because he looked at us and said, wow, there are some super nice, holy, great people. No. 
Not at all, people. If you're thinking that, you don't have a clue. He looked at us and said, what a mess. i got to do something here. By His good pleasure. It means that God's choice of us, His predestining us to be His children, was apart from any cause in us. It was independent. It was unaffected by sovereign will. God sovereignly decreed to choose those who were part of His family. Totally apart from any human consideration, purely on the basis of His own will. That bothers people. It doesn't bother me because I know if He chose me because of me, He never would have chose me, so I'm glad He chose me because of Him. Okay? Remember the word that I said to you, a servant is not greater than his master. If they persecuted me, they will also persecute you. If they kept my word, they will also keep yours. Yeshua says, remember what I told you? Well, he told them this principle earlier when he washed their feet in John 13, 13. He says, a servant is not greater than his master. That's just common knowledge, okay? A slave occupies an inferior role to the master. And so he says, a servant is not greater than his master. As I said last week, the word servant here is a bad translation. It's slave. Pure and simple, it's just slave. All right. Even though the disciples are his friends, he called them friends, he wants us to understand he's still viewed as slaves because he's our master, we're still the slave. That's a great, it's a great to be a slave when you've got a good master. Okay, they take care of everything. All right. He says, if they kept my word, they will keep yours. But if they persecute me, they'll persecute you. These are both first-class conditional sentences which assume to be true from the author's perspective. If they persecute me, which they did. If they kept my word, which they did. The term persecute is from the Greek word dioko, and it means to pursue or chase away. Over time, it came to mean to harass or to treat in an evil manner. Or to pursue as a wild animal. Persecution is the norm for followers of Christ in a fallen world. It's the norm. Now you think, well, to us it's not. I mean, we do hear stories about it from other people. Yeah, we're a little sheltered here in this country, but there's no guarantee that's going to last. We'll talk about that more. Abiding in Christ is going to result in fruit of being Christ-like. Thus, when the world observes Yeshua living in and through His disciples, unbelievers are going to respond to them just as they responded to Christ. They're going to hate Him. want to put Him to death. So if they kept my word, they'll keep your word. Those who reject the Lord Yeshua will reject the disciples and persecute them. And those who accept Yeshua will accept them. Because they're preaching the same message. He says in verse 21, But all those things they will do to you on account of my name, because they do not know him who sent me. Now, on account of my name is a standard formula used in the Gospels to express Yeshua's entire teaching, character, and identity. On account of my name could be, you could put instead, because of me. That's what he means by his name. The name means all that he is. Response to Yeshua's disciples, whether for good or evil, comes about because of who Yeshua is. Those of the world do not know Him who sent me, He says. The implication is that if they had truly known God, they would have recognized the revelation of God in Yeshua. Yeshua came into the world to reveal the Father to men. 
John 14, 9, Yeshua said to him, Have I been with you so long and you still don't know me, Philip? Now watch what he says. Whoever has seen me has seen the Father. You know, I believe we should be able to say that, people. Because we're image bearers. And we should be portraying God to the world. Now, I'm not going to say that. Okay? But we should be able to say that. Whoever has seen me has seen the Father. In rejecting Yeshua, they've rejected the Father. His name is divine. His name is Yahweh. And the world rejected His divinity and thereby they rejected the one true God. He says, if I had not come and spoken to them, they would not have been guilty of sin. But now they have no excuse for their sin. This is another second class conditional sentence, which means contrary to fact. It should be translated, if I had not come back and spoken to them, which I did, they would not have sinned, which they do. Now, he doesn't mean that the Jews would be sinless if he hadn't come back. That's the idea. Paul clearly taught Romans 3.23, all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. Everyone's born a sinner. So he's not saying that if he had not come and spoken to them, they'd be sinless. Rather, he's saying that if he had not come and spoken to them, they would not be guilty of the sin of rejecting him and rejecting the Father that he came to reveal. Rejecting Yeshua, people, is the unpardonable sin for which there's no forgiveness. I get that question a lot. What, what do you think is unpardonable sin? Rejecting Christ. That's unpardonable. You reject Him, there's no forgiveness for that. You die without Christ. Whoever hates me hates the Father. Now the opposite was stated positively in chapter 13, 20. Whoever receives me receives the one who sent me. So you receive Him, you receive the Father, you hate Him, you hate the Father. You know, verse 23 would be shocking and scandalous to a Jew. Because they didn't like Christ. But they said they loved the Father. So to say, whoever hates me hates the Father, the Jews would have gone crazy on that. See, they falsely assumed that they had a relationship with God based on, number one, their ancestry. You know, we were born in the right family. We're good to go. And they're keeping of the law. or they, They thought they were keeping the law of Moses. So the very ones who believe that they love God, and if you would ask the Jew, that Jew knew the greatest commandment, love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind. They knew that. And they would have said, yes, we love God. The very ones who claim to love God have demonstrated that they hate Him. And the proof is the fact that they hate Yeshua. What does this say about modern Jews today? Whoever hates me hates the Father. What's that say about modern Jews? If they don't love Yeshua, if they reject Yeshua, they don't love God. Now, it's interesting that John Hagee says Jews don't need Yeshua because they have their own covenant with God. Is that the dumbest thing you ever heard? I mean, all this guy needs to know how to do is read. I mean, seriously. All right, just learn how to read. Just think for a minute. Christ came to His own, which were what? Jewish. All His disciples were Jewish. His followers for the first ten years, nothing but Jews. But He says, Yeshua didn't come for the Jews. Man. (sighs) 
I'm trying to watch my tongue here because you just, it's just, it's, 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 yeah, it's frustrating when you got people with an audience the size of Hades telling people if you, if they're Jewish, you don't need Christ. You got your own covenant with God. Yeah, your only way you have a covenant with God is through Christ. The Bible says if you hate Yeshua, you hate the Father also. This is why Yeshua called the Jews the synagogue of Satan. Now, synagogue was a big deal to Jews. And he goes, well, you know what synagogue you belong to? Satan. What? Oh, I'm glad I didn't say that. I'd be arrested for a hate crime, okay? Anti-Semitism. So Yeshua is anti-Semitic, I guess, right? Look what he says in Revelation 3.9. Behold, I make those of the synagogue of Satan who say they are Jews and are not, but lie. Behold, I will make them come and bow down before your feet. He's talking to the church. And they will learn that I've loved you. Now, first of all, who would say they're Jews but aren't? Physical Israel. Physical Jews. They were Jews. Yeshua said that an unbelieving Jew was of the synagogue of Satan. What's interesting here, he's quoting Isaiah 60, verse 14. The the sons of those who afflicted you shall come bending low to you, and all who despise you shall bow down at your feet. They shall call you the city of Yahweh, the Zion of the Holy One of Israel. Now, if you were an Old Covenant Jew, you'd understand this prophecy of Isaiah as referring to your Gentile enemies being subservient to you. The Gentiles are going to come and bow down. But Yeshua uses this verse and applies it to the church that is the true Israel and it's Old Covenant Israel that's persecuting the church. And Yeshua said that Old Covenant Jews are going to come and bow before the feet of the church. The true Israel of God. Because the Christians are in Christ, hated the, the world hated them as they hated Christ. And as the, if they hated Christ, they hate the Father also. That's so clear. Back to John 24. If I had not done among them the works that no one else did, they'd not be guilty of sin. But now they have seen and hated both me and my Father. This is another second-class conditional sentence, which means contrary to fact. It should be translated, if I had not done the works among them which no one else did, but I did, they would not have sinned, but they do. His point is that by coming into the world and by preaching and working miracles, he had confronted people with their rebellion against God. Yeshua's words and His works were the fathers who sent Him. He said that over and over. Therefore, the world's rejection of Yeshua's words and works constituted rejection of God the Father. To hate Yeshua amounted to hating God. It's another strong implication of the deity of Yeshua. To hate Him is to hate the Father. He says, but now they have seen and hated both me and my Father. These are both perfect, active indicatives which show a settled attitude. To reject Yeshua is to reject the Father. Now, whether people recognize it or not, Yeshua's work was nothing less than God's work. 
Yeshua's speech was nothing less than God's words. Yeshua's works were God's activity. In Yeshua, God Himself was being seen. He is the one who narrates Yahweh on the plane of human existence. Look at what He said in John 1.18. No one has ever seen God. The only God who is in the Father's side, He has made Him known. The Greek word here is exegehomai. It means to exegete. It means to explain, to interpret, to give the meaning. The Son has exegeted, He has explained, He has interpreted, He has narrated the Father to humankind. When you saw Yeshua, you saw the Father. So you want to know about Yahweh? Well, Yeshua exegetes Yahweh. He displays His glory. He dispenses His grace. He defines Yahweh. Thus, to hate Yeshua is to hate God. Just as to accept Yeshua is to accept the Father. He says, He has made Him known. So why was it that the Jews rejected Yeshua? I mean, was God caught off guard by the unbelief of the Jews that He came to save? Was He caught off guard by the persecution of Christ and Christ's people? The next verse tells us the ultimate reason for the world's rejection of Yeshua and the revelation of the Father is found in the Scriptures. He says, but, that the, <clears throat> but the word that is written in their law must be fulfilled. They hated me without a cause. See, the world's hatred did not jeopardize God's redemptive plan. The world's hatred was part of the plan of God. The Jews' own Scripture condemned their unbelief. Yeshua is quoting here from either Psalms 35.19 or 64.4, perhaps both. Psalms 35 is David's lament to Yahweh over his persecution. Psalms 35.19, David cries out, Let not those rejoice over me who are wrongfully my foes. And let not those wink the eye who hate me without a cause. Psalm 69 is a similar lament in which David tells God in verse 4, he says, More in number than the hairs of my head are those who hate me without cause. Mighty are those who would destroy me, those who attack me with lies. What I did not steal must now restore. See, David says, they hated me without a cause. But that text is brought over into the New Testament from Psalm 69. Psalm 69 is one of the greatest psalms that's applied to the Lord Yeshua, typically because David, the son, Yeshua was the son of David, and he's a, David is a picture of his greater son, the Lord Yeshua. And the experiences of David anticipate the experience of the Lord Yeshua, and David was often hated without a cause. That is, the only cause was David's relationship with the God he served. The hatred of Yeshua and the persecution of his people was all part of God's plan. This wasn't something that's like, oh man, the plan of God is off track. They're hurting his people. Listen to what Peter said on the day of Pentecost when he's preaching. Men of Israel, hear these words. Yeshua of Nazareth, a man attested to you by God with mighty works and wonders and signs. It's clear he was from God. Look at all the stuff he did, he says. That God did through him in your midst as you yourselves know. You guys know this. 
You know that was a work of God. This Yeshua, now watch, delivered up according to the definite plan and foreknowledge of God. What? You, you guys, you crucified and killed by the hands of lawless men. God planned this out, you carried it out. By the plan of God, you killed him. See, hating Yeshua was in the plan. In chapter 4 of the book of Acts, verses 23 through 31, we see the same thing. It was within the purpose of God that they hated and killed Christ. Acts 4, 27 and 28. For truly in this city they were gathered together against your holy servant Yeshua, whom you anointed, both Herod and Pontius Pilate, along with the Gentiles and the people of Israel, to do whatever your hand and your plan had predestined to take place. Guess what? These wicked people did just like you planned that they would do. Our Lord is saying to His disciples, it's part of the plan that the world's going to hate you without a cause. It was, in fact, God's plan to employ Jewish unbelief as an occasion to bring the Gospel to the Gentiles. He says in Romans 11.11, So I asked, did they stumble, that's the Israel, in order that they might fall? By no means. Rather, through their trespass, salvation has come to the Gentiles to make Israel jealous. Now what's interesting in in both of these psalms that are lamenting the unjust persecution, they persecuted me without a cause, they both end in praising God for His goodness to His faithful servant. Psalm 35 ends, Let those who delight in my righteousness shout for joy and be glad and say evermore, Great is Yahweh who delights in the welfare of His servant. Then my tongue shall tell of your righteousness and of your praise all the day long. Psalm 69 ends, Let heavens and earth praise Him, the seas and everything that moves in them. For God will save Zion and build up the cities of Judah, and people shall dwell there and possess it. The offspring of His servant shall inherit it, and those who love His name shall dwell in it. It's Yeshua's promise that the persecution of the righteous for His sake will not go unnoticed by God and that He will deliver them in the end. Let me point out something else I think it's interesting in this verse. He says, they hated me without a cause. Now, the words without a cause are from the Greek word doria. And Paul uses this same word in Romans 3.25 and are justified by His grace as a gift. That word gift is doria through the redemption that is in Christ Yeshua. So, Christ was persecuted without a cause. We are justified without a cause. In other words, there's no cause in us. There's no reason in us. There's nothing in us that God should justify us. Alright, so after the death of Christ, let me ask you, were the disciples hated and persecuted as Yeshua said they would be? Did this really happen? Was He preparing them for something that never came about? No. All but one of the apostles were eventually killed for their faith. And Paul, who later became a disciple, listed the highlights of his ministry this way. Five times I received at the hands of the Jews forty lashes save one. Five times of the Jews. See, the first opposition the Christian faced came from the Jews. Because the church came out of Judaism and all its earliest members were Jews. Forty lashes 
lest one was a distinctive punishment handed out by the synagogue authorities. 39 lashes. They didn't want to go over 40, so they'd always just do 39. They would do it with a whip. It was leather things in the whip, and they would put bone and metal in, braided in, so when the whip hit your back, it pulled pieces out. 39 times. Paul says, five times that happened to me. And then he goes on to say, three times I've been beaten with rods. They take a bundle of rods and often they put a sword in the middle so when the rods hit your back, they separate and the sword would slice you. Three times that happened. He said, once I was stoned. They threw rocks at me until they thought I was dead. Three times I was in a shipwreck. Night and day I spent a deep. You know what's amazing about this text later? He says this. And besides all this, the care of all the churches. How do you compare that, Paul? He goes, all this suffering I'm going through, but the real, my real burden is the care of all the churches. He, he lived out as a disciple. He loved the church. All through the book of Acts, we see Jewish persecution of Christians. Acts 5.17, But the high priest rose up with all who were with him, that is the party of the Sadducees, and filled with jealousy, they arrested the apostles and put them in a public prison. You guys can't be preaching that stuff. Acts 7.59, And they were stoning Stephen. They didn't like Stephen's message, so they killed him. The next chapter says, And Saul approved the execution. Saul was there. He said, That's a good thing. Let's kill these guys. And there arose that day a great persecution against the church in Jerusalem. And they were all scattered. So the early Christians suffered greatly at the hands of the Jews. They were hated and persecuted, just like the Lord says in our text they would be. Now later in the book of Acts, the gospel spread into the Mediterranean world, where the Gentiles were. And it isn't long before the Gentiles begin to also persecute believers. The Romans carry on that persecution for almost 300 years. Don't know if this is accurate or not, but I found one source, that it was a Roman Catholic source, that said, in all church history, about 70 million Christians have been killed for their faith. That's hard for us to believe, you know, in our country. Our Lord said, the world hates you. They will persecute you. Well, what about today? I mean, we know that happened to them. What about today? Is it still the same or is we this different for us, right? Was that just for transition saints? You think that's for all saints? You know, more Christians have been killed for their faith in the last hundred years than in the previous 1900. And the trend is accelerating. Today, Christians continue to face imprisonment, torture, death for their faith in Christ. The world watch list lists the top 50 countries that persecute Christians. The top 10 are, you know what's top one? What? North Korea. North Korea, Afghanistan, Somalia, Sudan, Pakistan, Eritrea, Libya, Iraq, Yemen, and Iran. Now, the World Watch List is an annual report on the global persecution of Christians that ranks the top 50 countries where Christians are persecuted for their faith. Released at the beginning of each year is a list of data from open-door field workers and other external experts to qualify and analyze persecution worldwide. So every year they put out this list. Here's what's going on in the world. Here's how Christians are being persecuted. 215 million Christians experience high levels of persecution in countries on the world watch list. 215 million. 
This represents one in 12 Christians worldwide. North Korea is ranked number one. They've been ranked number one for 16 years in a row. You know what was fascinating to me? Remember when the Olympics were just not that long ago and Kim Jong-un's sister was there and they just made such, the media made such a big deal of, oh, look, praising her and, oh, what, what a great family and, oh, wonderful. People, if it comes out of the media, you know it's wrong. How do you know if they're lying? Their lips are moving, okay? This is not, they're not reporting any news. They're telling you, here's how you should think. So I'll tell you, be real careful of anything they say. If they say the sky's blue and the sun is out today, you better go check. Because they got an ulterior motive. During the World Watch List 218 reporting period, 3,066 Christians were killed. This, that's the year of 2018, the, the reporting of that from the following year. 1,252 were abducted, 1,020 were raped or sexually assaulted, and 793 churches were attacked. And here's what they say, Islamic oppression fuels persecution in eight of the top ten countries. Islam, the religion of peace, is promoting all this hatred towards believers. They want to stomp out Christianity. The Lord said, guess what, people? The world hates you. They're going to persecute you. So let me ask you this. <clears throat> it's terrible. We hear the story every week about martyrs, tortured, suffering, being just mutilated for the cause of Christ. And the thing that, I don't know what the, the right word, the thing that bugs me the most about hearing those stories is they don't ever retaliate. You know, that bugs me because yeah, I'd like to just, okay, come on, bring it on. We're ready for you, you know. We're going to fight back. But they don't seem to do that. They just suffer for the cause of Christ. So, how can we help stop this? How can we stop this persecution? How can we stop this hatred towards believers? We can. We're stupid to try it. Listen, the Lord said the disciples are going to be hated. That's our badge of distinction in this world, people. I want you to notice what Paul wrote to the Philippians. He says, it has been granted to you. It's been granted to you for the sake of Christ that you should not only believe in Him, it's been granted that you believe, but not only that you believe, but you also suffer for His sake. It's been granted to suffer. The word granted here is the Greek verb karizomai. Karizomai comes from keros, which means grace. So karizomai is grace. The noun form is used as spiritual gifts. Vine's Expository Dictionary of New Testament Words says karizomai primary denotes to show favor or kindness. To give freely, bestow graciously. It has been graciously granted to you to suffer. What, Paul, you got a screw loose or something? What is I understand salvation is a grace, right? No, Paul says suffering is a grace gift. That's got to be a misprint, right? I mean, doesn't it have to be? 
He compares suffering with salvation. He says, it's been granted to you to believe. We know that. No problem there, right? We know. Ephesians 2, 8, 9. It's a gift of God. Paul says, so is suffering. He doesn't say suffering is punishment or that it's something that happens to you by chance. God gives suffering as graciously and lovingly as He gives you the faith to believe in His Son. How can Paul say that? I'd like to write him off as a madman, but I find this a lot of other places in Scripture. Okay? I think what this should do for us, 21st century American Christians, is show us how far we've come from the thinking of the first century believers. Paul says suffering is a grace gift. God giving suffering as a gracious gift, that doesn't make sense to us. We get mad because of it. Evidently, believers, suffering in some way or some degree is essential to the formation of Christian character because God said, I'm giving it to you graciously. Now, suffering may differ today, at least in America, in meaning from what its meaning was in the early days of the church. By that I mean it may not mean bodily torment, not here, imprisonments, starvation, or torturous death, But it will always be the price we pay when we live uncompromisingly for the gospel of Christ. In this country, in this world, you can lose your job because of your faith in Christ. If you're bold enough, you can lose friends because of this. There's people that don't want to hang around you. We're sick of hearing you preaching. You probably don't even preach it. You just live it. That's preaching. That's too loud for them. No, I don't want to hear that stuff. You don't want to hear their jokes. You don't want to be involved in what they do. When we abide in Christ, if you abide in Christ, okay, second class condition, maybe you will, maybe you won't. All right? No, third class condition, maybe you will, maybe you won't. All right? If you abide in Christ, the world will hate you and they will persecute you. This country, that, any country. Our persecution is different, much different, but it still will happen. We suffer to bring about continued dependence on the grace and power of God. Suffering is designed to cause us to walk by God's ability, by God's power, by His provision, rather than our own. People, when you're under persecution and you're suffering and dying for your faith, it causes us to forget about any resources we have and just trust in Him. Paul says we had a sentence of death. Why? Do we learn to trust in Him and not ourselves. That's what persecution does, people. pushes you away from trusting in yourself, your own ability, your own whatever, and just trust in Him. It's part of being a godly Christian. It's part of abiding in Christ. It's part of being a disciple. Because when you live godly, it's going to bother the world today just as much as it bothered the world then. Because the world hadn't changed. Okay? They're still anti-God, anti-Christ, maybe more so today in this country. It's gonna, you're going to bother them. So you can count on it. Like I said, if you're not having problems with the world, you better find out what's wrong with your relationship with God. Let's pray. Father, thank you this morning for this text, Lord. It's, it's hard for us to wrap our heads around the fact that when we love you, when we follow you, The world's going to hate us. 
and it's going to persecute us. We skate by in this country so easily, Lord, it's easy to forget about all this. I pray it'd be a call for us to pray for our brothers and sisters around the world who are suffering and dying for their faith. And Father, help us to just examine our own lives. Are we really imitating you? Are we an image bearer of Yeshua and the Father? Do we live in a way that people look at us and see you, Lord? We know when that happens, it's going to cause persecution. Give us grace, Lord, to be the people you've called us to be. Amen.